Part Three, Chapter Five of Mountains in the Mist. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mountains in the Mist by Frank W. Borum, praying for Carlo. I caught myself looking in at a bookseller's window the other day, in a perfunctory and absent-minded kind of way, when I was suddenly pulled up with a start. The good man was offering a quantity of his old stock at greatly reduced prices. One shelf was even marked six pence, and it certainly contained a lot of rubbish that would fetch no more. But halfway along the shelf, I saw, to my amazement, Mr. Edwin Hodder's Life of Sir George Barnes, Barnett. It was the original large type edition, with fine steel engravings, absolutely new and with pages uncut. No man in his sober senses would allow biography of any kind to linger in such humiliating conditions. But a volume of Mr. Hodder, the author of the standard biographies of Lord Shatsbury and of Samuel Morley. And least of all would any sane man permit Hodder's life of Sir George Burns to continue in such desperate straits. Sir George Burns was, of course, the founder of the Cunard Steamship Company. He was, therefore, to all intents and purposes, the father of the modern ocean liner and the pioneer of our huge oceanic traffic. We have recently celebrated the sanctuary of the first passenger steamship, whose first voyage, by the way, Sir George Burns witnessed. And the volume has a peculiar timely interest. Moreover, Sir George Burns was the son of Dr. Burns, and the intimate personal friend of Dr. Thomas Chalmers, Dr. Thomas Guthrie, and of the other stalwarts of the Great Disruption Days and Sir George holds the unique distinction of being the oldest baronet ever created, for it was at his age of ninety-four that, to his almost boyish exultion, Queen Victoria conferred his well-earned title upon him. I need scarcely say that I returned to my home that afternoon with sixpence less in my pocket, but feeling very amiable towards myself and the world in general. I have since read this fascinating story from cover to cover, with unflagging interest and delight. It sparks with matters of paramount interest, but one stands out from the rest. It is of that one characteristic that I now write. Sir George was a Presbyterian of the old school. The church, the Sabbath, and the family altar were his chiefest treasures. He had unlimited faith and prayer, but the thing that has impressed me has been the admixture of sanity with spirituality. I give one example. In its early days, the Cunard Company had to contend against fierce, almost frantic competition. For a while, some of the opposition boats contrived to beat the Cunarders in the race across the Atlantic. But Sir George Burns refused to be discouraged. He saw his records beaten. He heard the murmurs of his supporters and the cheers of his rivals. But he persisted in the policy of building ships that were first safe and then swift. Everybody told him that the faster ships would soon run his own off the Atlantic but he smiled knowingly and quietly went on his own way. He considered speed in each order that he sent to the yards, but he considered safety first. Then came the crisis. In September 1854, the Arctic, one of his opponent's fleet of four steamers, foundered at sea, with fearful loss of life. The wife, son, and daughter of the proprietor went down with the ship. In a little more than a year, the Pacific, the second of the opposition ships, followed suit. She left Liverpool and was never heard of again. The prestige of the rival company was in ruins. 
whilst the cunard company was still able to advertise that it had never lost a passenger the loss of the two vessels of the one company the absolute immunity of the other set many tongues wagging some commented upon the cunard's company's wonderful run of luck others talked about a special interposition of providence on behalf of the cunarders indeed there was a story current that the sailing of every ship of the cunard fleet was made the subject of special prayer and that mr burns was one to attribute his success to this source mr burns however would not recognize this as the true interpretation of the position he held that there were certain elements that made for the safety of vessel and that these elements were within human control he was scrupulously careful to providing his ships with all these features even if he sacrificed speed risked his profits and invited public censure by doing so i believe implicitly he would say in the power of prayer but i also believe in doing work well and in subordinating profit and speed and public opinion to safety comfort and efficiency the difference between his boats and those of his rivals was not that his boats were more prayed for than theirs but that their construction was more carefully guarded he did not believe that providence could be persuaded by the prayers of any one owner to favor his particular commercial enterprise to the detriment and disadvantage of others now this is very suggestive but i have not finished with sir george burns yet i propose to follow him from his busy office to his beautiful home castle wims is a lovely mansion built upon a huge rock at the extreme edge of the promontory where the river clyde winds into the firth it is one of scotland's most palatial but delightful homes and sir george was accustomed to entertain there ladies and gentlemen of the highest rank and station but whoever was there sir george always gathered the entire household even evening around the family altar and always personally conducted the worship on one occasion mr hodder tells us sir george's dog a great favorite was lost and his master mourned for him the great diligent search was made and when at last it had to be abandoned as hopeless sir george's grief was pitiful to behold and when the old man bowed himself that evening in the midst of his household and led them to the throne of grace he included an affecting petition for his wayward collie o thou he prayed who preservest both men and beast and without knowledge not a sparrow falls to the ground we pray that whenever our old friend and companion may wander it may please thee to find him a home among folk by whom he will be well received and kindly treated i hope to read a good many more books in my time but i expect to meet with few more charming touches than that and now i have finished with sir george burns but in this matter of the cunarder on one hand and of the carlo of the other sir george has drawn my attention to a matter of the utmost significance and importance we ministers are forever and forever telling our people that they ought to pray we preach that wholesome doctrine to point of wariness but we rarely point out that it is often very wrong and very wicked and very dangerous to pray and it certainly is sir george burns makes it clear to me that i must not pray for my canarder unless i have exhausted all the facilities of wit and skill and ingenuity in securing her safe construction it is wrong to pray for carlo unless i am taking good care that no stone is left unturned in search of him now i fear that in preaching this doctrine i may shock some of the most excellent people who i would not shock for all the world i must therefore fortify myself 
let me lay beside these stories of Carlo and the Cunarder three classical illustrations, two of a positive and one of a negative kind. Number one, Moses shall be my first. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou to me? Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. It was no time for prayer. The Egyptians were at their heels. The sea was in the front. The army had been commanded to march, but Moses prayed, and God rebuked him for praying. Wherefore criest thou to me, go forward. It was no time for prayer. It was time for progress. It was no time for meditation. It was time for movement. Dr. Adam Clark, the great commenter of a slow worker, and he could not produce his wealth of literary treasure by long and patient toil. He therefore made it his custom to rise early every morning. A young preacher, anxious to emulate the distinguished doctor, asked him one day how he managed it. Do you pray about it? he inquired. No, the doctor quietly answered. I get up. Mr. Moody used to tell how once he came upon a group of wealthy American Christians praying for the removal of a debt of one hundred pounds in their church building. Gentlemen, said Mr. Moody in his decisive way, I don't think if it were you I should trouble the Lord in that matter. Now I confess that this great word in Exodus often alarms me. I am a minister, and I find myself praying for my people. I am a father, and I find myself praying for my children. And sometimes I fancy I hear a voice breaking in upon my supplications and asking, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto them. We have already seen that I have no right to pray for my ships until I have done all that human forethought can effect to render them safe and seaworthy. We have seen that I have no right to pray for Carlo unless I have scored him the whole neighborhood in search for him. And now I see that I have no right to pray for my people unless I am putting all my conscience and all my soul into a full and faithful ministry. And I have no right to pray for my children unless I am, by my lips and by my life, laboring ceaselessly to lead them to the Savior's feet. Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak ye to the children. I never read that text without thinking of Susanna Weasley. Was there ever a mother like that mother of the Weasleys? One night she had been praying for her great family. At last, she says, It came into my mind that I might do more than I do. I resolved to begin. I will take such proportion of time as I can best spare. Every night to discourse with each child by itself. How Susanna Weasley kept that good resolution, and with what tremendous and earth-shaking results the whole world very well knows. Number two. My second illustration is the story of Balaam. Balaam saw his duty with perfect clearness, and instead of doing it, he prayed about it, and disaster followed. Nothing could have been more specific than his instructions. God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with the men, thou shalt not curse the people, yet in defiance of that clear commandment, he prayed for guidance. The fault of Balaam, says Dr. R. A. Watson, was that a tampering with his inspiration, he has a clear mind and a clear eye, and his way is plain. Yet the withdrawal of his mind from its sole allegiance to God tells at once on his moral vision it is clouded. The oracle becomes ambiguous. He hears two voices, many voices, and his mind is confused. He takes a crooked course, and he suffers shipwreck. Balaam's great sin was the sin of praying. He prayed himself into the conviction that he might do the very thing 
that he had been specifically commanded not to do if my duty is once made plain to me my duty is to do my duty and not to pray for guidance that has already been most clearly vouchsafed number three the negative illustration that i promised is the case of philip the angel of the lord spake unto philip saying arise and go toward the south unto gaza which is desert and he arose and went sensible man and successful man if he had stopped to pray about it he would have missed the ethiopian's chariot the angel said go he arose and went and by going promptly he just met the chariot as it swept past on the sandy road after the angel had said go it would have been both wicked and disastrous for philip to have paused to pray for guidance it would have spoiled everything yes there is a time when it is right to pray we must teach people that but there is a time when it is wrong to pray and we must teach people that i have no right to pray unless by sweat of brain and brow i am doing my utmost to compass the end for which i pray i confess to a fondness for that fine story which general booth was so fond of telling the general knew of a little girl who worried herself into a fearful state of agitation concerning the birds that became entangled in her brother's traps one evening at her mother's knee she prayed about it o lord she prayed don't let the little birds get into robbie's traps please don't let them and then to her mother's astonishment she added exultingly oh i know they won't they can't amen but dolly remonstrated her mother what makes you so sure that god will answer your prayer for the birdies why exclaimed dolly confidently because before i prayed i went out into the garden and smashed the traps there is a role to very sound philosophy to be gleaned at that point end of part three chapter six